everybody. It is March 31st, 2023, and I am Lisa Salberg, and this is Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today, I am with my uh, partner in crime on a little adventure, um, Joey Graham, who is a patient who is sharing his HCM journey. Just a couple programming notes before we welcome Joey to the program. Got to give a shout out. It's my big brother's birthday today. Oh, wow. So happy birthday, Larry. Happy birthday, Larry. Uh, glad your present arrived yesterday. And we'll leave it at that. Joey, good morning. Good morning, Lisa. It's good to see you again. Great to have you here. So since last we talked, you've done a few things, and I'm following you on social, and I see you had uh, your trip to your center. So let's start by talking about... How did you get to your center? Was it a drive? Was it a plane, train, automobile? What'd you do? Yeah, absolutely. I talked to my doctor, who is an HCM specialist, and he was concerned about the symptoms. I was having some chest pressure that he just wasn't comfortable with. And he wanted me to go because it was a consistent pressure and my breathing was being greatly affected. He wanted me to go to a local Indianapolis hospital for hearts and talked about having them transfer me to Cleveland. And as much as I really would have loved to take his orders on that, I've ridden in an ambulance before across town, and it's just not made for comfort. So I packed a bag and I uh, got everything ready. And the next morning I drove myself because we were closing on our old house that we sold on that date. And so my husband, Richard, stayed home to take care of that. And I went to Cleveland by car, five-hour drive, got there, and it was a direct admit. Okay. So let me just get this straight. You're having chest pain. They suggest the emergency room. And you say, I'm just packing a bag. And I'm going to drive five hours by myself. Yeah. I have learned one thing through all of this, and it is the billing that you get after you spend time with these great professionals is sometimes eye-popping. And I thought, and maybe it was the wrong decision, Lisa, but I thought I can cut that out of the equation and I can drive directly there early in the morning and be there at a certain time and then we're not paying for a transportation cost. That's sort of the way I think you're free to lecture me. Actually, I'm not going to lecture you. I am going to dive into this a little bit because I wasn't expecting this angle today, which is why we try not to have a pre-conversation so it's not so scripted. I want my surprises to be surprises, um, and I'm surprised. So economics and healthcare, even in a crisis, it's it's staggering. And in a perfect world, I wish you didn't even have to have that in your equation. Like, go to the emergency room, let them help you. But you're right, we do. And I've done it. I've done it. I, I, I've been there. I, I cannot, I can't tell you to do what I did. Um, I, I was a couple of days before I ended up in the hospital being listed for a transplant. I had an event in a restaurant and they're like, we're going to call an ambulance. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's going to be a pain in the ass. You're going to send me to the wrong hospital. They're not going to know what to do with me. Then they're going to want to transfer me. And then MICU is going to come. And then I'm going to get the bill for five grand to go across town. I'm going home and calling my doctor. So, like, I've done this. I've, and, and part of it was economic. And part of it was fear of somebody not being knowledgeable about my disease state and not wanting to play 
educator in an emergency room, which is always an awkward position for a patient. So I hear you, and I'm glad that you said that. Um, I do wish that there was a middle road there, though. I wish you both got in the car and somebody drove yes. you there. Okay. Driving by yourself, that one I can give you a little not little knock for that one. And that you've was never not even right ridden one. with me. So, but you're probably right. <laughs> I would, even if it was just bringing a buddy, if you wanted to do the driving, because if you started to feel poorly, if you were feeling bad enough to want to drive to a center for symptomatic issues, please get a, please have somebody go with you yeah, in the future. Absolutely. Well, here's a little hiccup I didn't expect and probably should have is we have, of course, already received some bills in the mail from the center and those weren't unexpected what was is probably because i drove myself it was looked at as non-emergent and so i don't know if everyone's experience is generally insurance companies deny you right out of the gate but more times than not and this isn't my first day at the rodeo despite the shirt I've had to call and argue my way and get many people involved. It's never easy. Oh, the health insurance issues. Um, I have I've spent many, many hours on the phone with insurance companies, personally, for clients, for family members. Like It's always an argument. Interestingly, I spent 18 years as a human resource manager and health plan administrator, and I wrote my own health plan, and I managed my own health plan for 18 years. So... I know the game, I know the language, and I can cut straight to it a lot of times, but most people don't know that language, they didn't spend a career doing it. Yes, they will deny you almost out of the gate, on, from depending upon the company and the level of plan within that company. They often get kicked out for something because you can always find fault with the claim. There's always some piece of data missing. They can always argue something and they're probably legit in that according to their contract. Not in reality, the contract. So you got to put in your appeal and you have to be specific and you have to be timely and you have to be persistent. And you have to know your policy language. They used to have to provide you with a printed copy. Now they can do it electronically, but you should have access to your plan document through your portal, and you should be able to look up the policy language specifically and point to specific languages to where you feel you are covered. We can help you kind of go through that if you need some assistance at the CMA, you know, just Thank you. set an appointment. And that goes to everybody. We advocacy. How do you advocate for yourself in health insurance? So a lot of the bills will go in, they'll get processed, they'll get denied, they'll get reprocessed. The hospital will step in, they'll figure out, they'll negotiate. It takes some time. Don't pay a bill at the first time you get it. Wait for it to play out for a couple of weeks. Uh, it can take 60 to 90 days for most things to clear up, but don't let them go too much longer because then they'll tell you you timed out. Well, and we're building a new house that we've just broken ground for. They've checked our credit to approve us for a mortgage. And guess what? They're going to check it again after five or six months. And something like this is just a dark cloud hanging over. You know, I have to be mindful of lots of different tracks of this to make sure everything stays in sync for us to move forward with regular life. So you need to look at your state and federal laws. In some areas, medical debt is not allowed to be used in a credit rating. 
So, or it's in process in a few states. I'm, I got to check the, the the status of the law, but this is what they're trying to do because everybody has medical debt these days. Like it's it's more common than not, and a lot of it is insurance disputes. I'm in network. You're out of network. I thought it was in network because this said that, and you're fighting these in network out of networks, and they end up you know a ding on your credit or a lawsuit or something of the sort. So you can clear these things up and it's it's ridiculous the amount of time and money we waste collecting for health insurance and ridiculous. So you drove yourself to the hospital because you were having chest pains that were unusual for you and you were having some difficulty breathing. So you get to a center of excellence. You are admitted. Now they're trying to figure out like the root cause of why you're feeling this way, right? Yeah. Yeah. I felt guilty a little bit because I was on this unit where I'm walking down the hallways and the majority of people there are not ambulatory. And I'm a slow walker, heavy breather, but I still like to get up and move. I wanted to go get my own ice for water. And I just felt this enormous guilt because the nurses, they were absolutely great, but they had many patients to take care of. And I felt that I was there for monitoring, which my doctor felt was serious, but I just felt like I was kind of like a sore thumb there. Well, I think that's kind of common for us. I have had many hospitalizations over my HCM life. I can recall, actually, it's coming up on the anniversary tomorrow. It happened on April Fool's Day. Oh, gosh. Um, 2001. Wow. Three nine eleven days, okay? Yeah. I went to have my ICD checked, and it's April Fool's Day. And the team comes in, and they're like, we don't say anything. And I'm like, ha-ha, April Fool's, it's gone. And they're like, no, Lisa, seriously, like the battery's like not on, like it's the, the device is turned off. I'm like, wait, what? So I'm like perfectly fine. And they're like, you can't go anywhere. You have to stay. I'm like, it was actually Passover and my in-laws were about to have dinner. And like, I'm like, but no, no, I have to, it's Passover. And they're like, yeah, we don't care. Your ICD's not working. You're not leaving. So I walked around the ward all night and said to the nurses, I'll bring that lady water if you want. So I was like, I played assistant that night. <laughs> so like, and you're like, I, I, I really don't need to be here, but I'm here. And there's a guilt that comes with that. It was, I'm like, I felt, I felt guilty and I was just having the device replaced, but you had some chest pains and they were trying to work it out and you're there, but you still, you know, you're getting around, you're walking and it is confusing because you're on the same ward, aren't you? Yes. But it's very different. Yeah. It's a very different end of the spectrum for a lot of the people that are there, or it's a very different place in the journey for the people that are there. I'm just getting started. Some of them, I hate to say it, were, you know, towards the end of their journey. And I just felt horrible. Well, hospitals will do that. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, we we are mortal and we do get to the end of our path at some point, but our goal is to keep you as healthy as possible while you're on this side of the grass, as my dad used to say, <laughs> and do the best we can while we're here. So you're in the hospital, feeling yes, a little guilty, and they're trying to assess the nature of your chest pain. Yeah. And what did they determine it to be? They had said that due to the tests that we did, echoes, 
in bed. And then I went downstairs and did additional echoes pre and post stress test. When I was in bed, things seemed okay, you know, maybe a little off, but pretty stable. And the stress test. Yeah. After it's a fine line too, because doctors say, Joey, you know, they're never going to have to worry about me lifting weights because that is just not my wheelhouse, but don't exert yourself. Take it easy. You know, it's okay to go on little walks, this and that. So I'm like, it's all about how I process what they say. So they're basically telling me I'm out of shape, but at the same time, I'm not really allowed to exercise until we get a handle on this. So I felt this is a teaching hospital. So there were all these people in the room and it was a, I was embarrassed and had a hard time defending myself and finding the right words. Part of it probably is that I'm out of shape and part of it is probably HOCR. Okay. You just dropped a bomb of a word as a patient. I was defending myself. The relationship between medical provider and patient should never be in a place where a patient feels that they are defending themselves. However, we feel like that often. And I have, over the past couple of months, been trying to get people to lean into a new concept. And that is, if you read a doctor's note after your visit, they use some specific language. It's not meant to be negative, but I think over time it became that way. Patient complains of complaint. It's a negative word. It is. Defending yourself is it's a confrontational, right? It's I have to defend myself from having to complain to this individual. And that individual care provider is programmed to think of the complaint is. Can we use the word report? The report no. is. The patient reports. And right there, we're starting shared language yeah. that is non-confrontational. Yes. And allows us to interact more smoothly with each other. And I think we really need to lean into, I'm reporting the following. And, and if we start the conversation with, I'm reporting, we take ourselves out of victimhood. We take ourselves into ownership of our body and that we're communicating with a partner who's going to help us achieve the goal that we want to achieve rather than I'm complaining and, and they're prescribing. That's transactional. And it's different. I feel like you're Barbara Walters because I've yet to be on with you. Where you're, you've not made me cry, but I feel like I have to defend myself at home and with friends and at work and with doctors. And I just am exhausted with it. If I could choose to not have to go through this, I would walk away. So it's hard. It's, it is very hard, and I think even harder mentally. I want to give you permission to not feel like you have to defend. And that goes for everybody. You shouldn't be def 
defending yourself. You should be reporting. So I'm going to pivot that because there was a comment in the Facebook group last night, this morning, and it really stopped and made me think. Like, really, like there's been three meetings this morning already about this, okay? Like I walked in, I'm like, okay, we have we have to work on this project. It was somebody posting very beautifully. It was more poetic about their experience as a caregiver and all the things that they have to prepare for and all of these eventualities that are in their mind. Now, I've been a caregiver to somebody with HSM, multiple people. I've been the patient and I've worked with all of you. Some of the things that were written there were hypervigilant. And whatever's going to make you comfortable to live in your world, that's fine. Do you. But what do you have to do? What are you doing? What's helpful? What's hurtful potentially to the patient? We need to start talking about this big time. Because just a couple of the choice words that were used, like this is how I prepare to do this And these are the things that I bring with me. I'm like, why? Well, what are you doing? So not that everybody doesn't need their security blanket, but what is the emergency action plan if you pass out? Don't be thinking about it all the time. Speak the words, communicate with each other and say, hey, partner, if I am really not well and I need an ambulance, I'm going to say these words to you and you know I'm serious. If I need a minute to just catch my breath, I'm going to say these types of words, or I'm going to give you these. My husband and I had hand gestures because I didn't want to freak out the kids in the house if I was having chest pain. So I would just walk by and I would go like this to my chest. And for those who are only listening, I'd bring my fist to my chest and I'd give them a little head tilt nod, like going in the bedroom for a minute. And that was like, my heart's not behaving right now. I need a minute. And then he'd come check on me, keep the kids busy in a way and let me have my moment and move on. But we communicated that. Yes. You need a language. We need a shared language and we need to have a safe environment. You, the caregiver, the patient, the rest of the family, everybody needs to be comfortable and nobody feel needs to feel like they're a China doll or they're (laughs) flawed or they're being protected. That's an evolution, right? Over time, because this, it's been a year now for me. And over that time, I've learned, but I have to communicate. And uh, to my husband's credit, he is learning and adapting. But it's such an elongated process and experience that these things do not organically happen out of the gate. It's a learned process. It is a learned process, and it's an evolution. And it doesn't go away in an HCM family. It's always going to be there. How prominent you choose it to be is a family decision. As my point of view, it belongs on the way, way back burner as much as possible. It's there. It's acknowledged. We're not going to go out and like ask everybody to hike on a 95 degree day and get pissed off. (laughs) do it we know that there are some limits but we're going to be a normal family we went down that rabbit hole let's pull ourselves back out of that rabbit hole let's play still (laughs) let's go over to this other rabbit hole so you're in the hospital for four days and during that four days they evaluate your anatomy they find some obstruction 
They find some valvular abnormalities that might need to be addressed. And who are you meeting with next? So I've had some conversations, which this is nice, the 2023 of being able to virtually connect with some of these experts because five hours is where my drive is. So five hours for a 45 minute meeting, it helps that we can just connect and I can be in a comfortable environment and, and they are as well. And we can talk, but basically we have decided that May 10th or 11th, I'm meeting with my regular HCM specialist. And then he's introducing me to somebody that he really speaks highly of as a heart surgeon. So I'm looking forward to it. So we're looking at a potential surgery. Yes. Which that adds in a whole bunch of other. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a moment. I think I've said this about five times this week. Um, some weeks I, I pull this one out and some weeks it just hibernates. I've had abdominal surgery. I've had a broken ankle. Uh, and I have had a heart transplant. With complications with my heart transplant because I took my ICD out the wrong way and that caused a whole other problem. So that's like a fourth surgery, right? Out of all of the procedures that I've had done and things that have happened to me, the abdominal surgery was by far the worst. The ankle has stayed with me the longest in 2008 and it's always going to be bad because it was broken in such a way. And my transplant was lowest on the list in terms of pain and discomfort long-term if I had to compare the three. And the procedure to put the heart in and a myectomy, plus or minus any other work that needs to be done, it's the same entry point, same injury, if you will. So it's it's not as horrible as it sounds. Yeah. It sounds horrid. It does. I know. It it sounds <laughs> it's just like mind blowing. Like they're gonna do what to me? They're gonna right. why am I letting them do this? but it can be incredibly impactful to quality of life. What are some questions, Lisa, that you think I should be asking myself and some expectations I should be setting for myself? I know it's subjective as to how my life and symptoms will change because that has to be case to case, right? But what are some reasonable questions to ask the surgeon and quality of life issues to discuss? recovery time, that sort of thing. I know the surgeon that you're going to be speaking with, incredibly high volume, among the highest in the country. But if we're talking about what would I suggest for you had I not known who it was, the first question I would be is, what is your volume and over what period of time? So if somebody says, oh, I did 10 of those last year, how many did you do the year before? And the year before, and the year before, where did they start their career? Where are they at? Is 10 enough? Is 40 enough? Is 60 enough? It's not a common procedure. Nobody's going to do thousands a year. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. But it can, the highest volume operators are in the area of 200 per year or 80 to 90 is kind of like the next level. And then there's the 40s and then there's the under 40s. We like to see 40 and above because you're kind of doing it almost every week. It's repetitive. Not only the surgeon is knowledgeable, but the team knows HCM well because they see it often enough. 
the ICU nurses that are there for your recovery and the floor nurses, they understand the journey you're on because they see a lot of it in the hospital. So you want that whole experience through the medical center. And I'm really excited. I'm going to give a teaser here, Joey. Okay. HCMA is going to be announcing a partnership with a transportation organization. And we are going to be able to not only help with the Lori Fund, getting people to centers if they can't get wow. there on their own, but we may even be providing air transportation through a partner wow. free of charge. That's incredible because that is part of the stressor mm -hmm. because there are, I know you're working hard, but the COEs are not in every state and are not accessible you know, within an hour or two always. So we're still doing logistics because I have two days for my next visit, both the 10th and 11th of May. And so it's like, all right, where are we going to stay? How are we going to get there? All, those are all Wait, stressors. More. You were just leading into everything that I'm working on. Another <laughs> announcement. So we are updating our web pages. It's going to be over the next couple of weeks. You're going to start to see some of these get populated. But we're working actually with a member of the community who has a small little company she started called Reasonable Accommodations. And you're going to start seeing the directory listing of the HCMA page with a little snippet about the town you're traveling to, what the weather is in the four seasons, how to pack, silly stuff like that hotel options, Airbnb options, other travel information that you might need, restaurants in the area, other activities to do if you want to get your mind out of being at the doctors, you know, museums and things like that. Because that'll be all on the page. That's see, I don't know how you did this 20 plus years ago. Honestly, you're a pioneer in this and the fact that you are still navigating this today is a testament to who you are. So, I know people have said thank you, but thank you from the bottom of my heart or the top whichever is the best because <laughs> you are doing a wonderful remarkable service and helping us navigate what could be one of the most difficult things that we ever navigate in life thank you it's hard you're you're welcome and i'm i'm happy to be able to be of service in that way this is it's as who I am, it's what I do, and I will probably be doing this forever. But getting back to your question. Yes, ma'am. The questions to the surgeon. Volume matters. How many have they done? What specifically is going to happen with your heart? What is the, your, their approach based on your images? What needs to be done? Some people need a straight myectomy. Some people need a deep myectomy that goes into the, the mid-cavity. Some will have an apical approach. Some will need their valves worked on. Some will need their papillary muscles worked on. Some may need a maze procedure to deal with atrial fibrillation at the same time as dealing with the outflow tract obstruction and the valvular issues. So there's a lot of different things that could happen in each patient's experience. So discussing with your surgeon, what exactly is it that we're going to do here? Sometimes valves can't be saved. We can pretty much determine in advance who that's going to be these days. And if that happens to be you, you want to have a conversation about what kind of valve do you want for a valve replacement? Do you want a mechanical, which would require you to be on anticoagulation for the rest of your life? Or do you want a bio, like a, a swine valve or a bovine valve? Pigs and cows, people, pigs and cows. Right. <laughs> um, so they're tissue valves. There's also cadaver valves so that you can use all these different types of valves. They last about 15 years. 
but you might have to go back in and replace it over time. So you have to do that balancing act and that shared decision-making. Do I want a life of anticoagulation or am I willing to come back and do the surgery again in 15 years? So these are conversations you wanna have in advance with your surgeon. They will also tell you what the likelihood is of needing a pacemaker after the procedure. Some people have a naturally occurring right bundle branch block. So the conduction down the right side of the ventricle, of the septal wall. And some people have a naturally occurring left bundle branch block. But anybody who has a myectomy gets cut into in the left bundle, so you'll lose your left bundle. Your heart can work perfectly fine without it. The signal just goes in a different direction. But if you lose both the right and the left, that's heart block. So you need a pacemaker. And they can predict pretty well who's going to need one in advance. Sometimes there's surprises after surgery, but typically we know who's going to get them. So you want to say, is there a likelihood that I'll need a pacemaker or a valve replacement as part of your pre-op meeting? And he'll give you statistics. Yeah. And then you go, okay, that, that could happen and that cannot happen. So you'll understand what your risks are and then what decisions you might need to make next. But you may need, not need to worry about any of it because now nah, your conduction system looks good and the valve looks great. We're just going to do this. So today's your brother's birthday. I have one rolling up and I'll be 50. And my question is, and maybe it's not one that is, you know, a definite answer, but would you think that this is a thing that happens one time or is it possible? It could be a reoccurring thing. And I know that's something that would be discussed in the shared decision-making. So I have not seen the imaging done from Cleveland to kind of give you an inkling of what my perspective would be and what questions I'd be asking about. But typically, given what we've discussed previously, this should be a one and done. You shouldn't need to go back and do it unless there's something with the valve that they need to put a tissue valve in, and then you'd be looking at a valve upgrade in 15 years. Okay. I don't think that's what's happening here. What is the reasonable time span for recovery? So you said a word earlier, and it's expectations. And boy, is that a really important word, okay? Like bad expectations lead to feeling disappointed. Think of your birthday, think of a holiday, think of like something you get all hyped up about and you put your expectations way up here and you always kind of walk away afterwards like I'm a little disappointed. Well, maybe your expectations weren't in alignment with what you were going to be getting. So having reasonable expectations allows us an opportunity to be happy to exceed those expectations yeah. rather than to hold expectations at a level that are unreasonable. Thank you for asking about expectations. You are not getting cured of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a myectomy. You are not. You are dealing with the outflow tract obstruction. The underlying myocardium is still affected by HCM. So you may still have some symptoms. However, your symptoms related to obstruction and the valve issue that we're talking about potentially here will be resolved. The muscle itself will still be impacted by HCM and you will likely need to continue some medical therapy. I do see a day that the potential for the newer agents might be able to be used post-myectomy. Trials are underway in non-obstructed HCM. So whether it's the current generation of myosin inhibitors 
or the next generation of myosin inhibitors that really targets that cardiac sarcomere and allows the heart to relax better and feel better. I'm geeking out on science right now. Sorry. I want to take you with me to every appointment. (laughs) Where's your schedule? I wish I could. I see that there's a time where we're going to add to the body of the therapy. So expectations post-surgery, honest ones. The first week sucks. It's a rough week. You're in pain. You're not sleeping well. You're on meds. Your appetite's yuck. And you're like, why the hell did I do this? So that's week one. So expect week one to suck. So anything beyond suck will be exceeding your expectations, okay? <laughs> yes. So we, we aim to exceed, right? Week two, you're going to start waking up more. You're going to move around more. You may have back pain, shoulder pain. That's common. Roll your shoulders slowly. Do some rolls. Do a little neck stretches. Keep everything kind of moving. Try to get up and walk as much as you can. You want to be moving, getting that fluid moved around the body. So you you just want to start being as normal as you can. Try to stay awake during the day, no naps. So you sleep more restfully at night. By the end of week two, you should be like, okay, this isn't so terrible anymore. Because the muscles that have been stretched when the heart was opened up and we open up that chest cavity, the muscles that are attached to the rib cage, they're going to move a little bit. You're going to kind of, if you imagine where your spine is, you're kind of opening it up. So you're putting pressure on the back there that it didn't have before. So you, you got to let the body relax. The muscles come back into normal function and they've been, they've been moved and they didn't like it. So they're going to hurt. <laughs> so it could be in the back shoulders or across the chest. You want to take good deep breaths so that the lungs are expanding and you're moving those muscles from the inside as well as moving them on the outside. So doing all these little steps will help you get to the end of week three. And you're saying, I got this. You're a little tired. You've been through a war. Every day you're in ICU is about a week of recovery. And every three days in the hospital is another week. So if you're in the hospital for five to six days and a day or two in the ICU, you're really looking at about a five-week full recovery for most people. Some people will go out to eight weeks, depending upon age and fitness level. So it's also got something to do with inborn resilience. And not everybody has the same resilience package. And sometimes when we're down, we just want to stay down and it takes us much longer to come back up. So eye on the prize. You want to be able to go out to a nice lunch and enjoy at the end of week three. That's your goal. And if you get to that nice lunch, I want a picture with a little glass up. Cheers, the whole bit. We'll put it in the next episode. The next week gets a little better, and the next week's a little bit better. Do not do any hard technical work for the first two and a half to three weeks. Don't review a contract. Don't send emails on critical issues. Just resist, 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 resist. Relax. Yeah. Week three, open up the emails. Week four, maybe work a couple hours if that's the kind of life you have. Week five, go further. I do not always practice what I preach. That's <laughs> so surprising. <laughs> you know I love you. But in retrospect, I should have listened to myself. I was working from my ICU bed post trans day three. Of course, yeah. But I'm, I'm insane. We know this. <laughs> 
like I had, there was a young lady who needed help. I had to help her from my transplant bed. And <laughs> my and biggest my fear is, is I won't be able to laugh really hard for a few weeks. Is that true? Laughter is my medicine, especially when it's self-deprecating. And my friends <laughs> are like, can we visit you and, you know, come hang out with you? But we're scared to death. We're going to make you laugh too hard. You can laugh. And in this case, laughter is actually a good therapy because good. it does move the muscles in the chest. <laughs> the first few are going to hurt. Um, you're going to use your pillow. You're going to do the cross hug. And if you start laughing, this, this is your position. It's like, you know, the mummy position. You want to cross your arms and hold the pressure in from the front so you're not pushing it all out when you're laughing. Thank goodness. If you if you want a good laugh, February 15th, 2017, video archive in the private HCM group. I am talking to everybody the day after I came home from my transplant with my ICD, and I shocked myself. I laughed so hard. I cried, and I'm, I'm trying not to laugh because I'm two weeks post, and I have the two wounds on my chest at that time. I, I, I laughed really, really <laughs> I laughed. I laughed the day I, I I woke up. It hurts to laugh, and so you you learn how to go. And you kind of laugh quietly, <laughs> and then your body takes over and you can't. I love it. But it's okay. So let's talk about the visitation yeah. afterwards. Can I tell you all a secret that I normally only do on the phone? <laughs> so if you don't want your loved ones to hear this, don't share this part of the podcast with them. Skip it. You want to keep a list of things that you want or would want in your home while you're recovering that you can send a friend out to go get when they want to come over and hang out with you because they think that that's how they're going to help you, but you really need to rest and they really want to do something nice for you, but you really need to rest and not entertain them, love them. Yes. So you want ice cream from your favorite ice cream shop. You want soup from your favorite diner. You want a sandwich from your favorite deli, put a couple bucks in an envelope and just hand it to them with the name of the institution on it and say, please go get me this. It's it's a way to have them feel useful. You're getting what you want and need, but you don't have to say, I really don't want to sit and entertain you for an hour. Right. I'm really tired. The other thing that I find really useful is literally posting your visiting hours. I will be accepting visitors from five to seven. And then I need my beauty sleep. And then I need, <laughs> and I know that you may not be available during these hours because of whatever phone calls are fine, whatever. And I'll take phone calls between this and this. You don't want a bunch of people traipsing in and out of your house all day, all night. You want to keep it to your pod, as we used to say during COVID, because people will bring in colds and whatever else is out there as well. So you don't want to get a cold while your chest is healing. So what you're going to want to do is put some masks by the door, hand sanitizer. If you've been coughing or if you think you might be coming down with something, please call me. Don't come in. Those types of messages. And you can put you can post them on your front door. Like, here are the rules of engagement. Those who do not abide by the rules will be kicked out. And I'm going to send Lisa after you. Uh, <laughs> That's great out. advice. It's setting boundaries with those who you don't normally have to set those yeah. types of boundaries with. Because it can get uncomfortable in the moment. Exactly. We all have a friend or two who kind of likes to be around in times of drama because then they get the intel straight from you and <laughs> they, they are in the know. We have them. They We love them. They love us. 
But we also need to tell those people, this is my personal information. This is my story. Can you please not use it as fodder and gossip? It's a little uncomfortable for people to be hearing the details of my life through you. Yeah. You get to be the PR clerk here on your own case, right? Who gets what information? What information is public? What information stays private? I'm going to tell you a secret. Nobody gets out of the hospital after open heart surgery without having a bowel movement. It has held up many a discharge from the hospital. So when people say, you know, we're waiting for discharge. Well, what are you waiting for? (laughs) Do we really need to be this specific people? TMI, TMI. Like, let's have some boundaries here. So your spouse may need to know that's what you're waiting for. But the social media really need to know. Probably not. You'll communicate with those who you want, how you want, when you want. Set the rules. Yeah. Set the rules. Expectations up front always seem to work best. And if we expect our friends and family to be there giving us what we need, how can we have them meet our expectations if we don't tell them what they are? It's unfair, yeah. We're not being needy. We're not being demanding. We're not playing... I'm trying to come up with the word for what's the equivalent of a post-surgical person to bridezilla. Drama queen. Yeah, we don't need to be drama (laughs) queens. We don't need to be, we just need to get through a really bizarre experience. Somebody is going to open our chest and put their hands on our heart. And then they're going to close us back up and send us home. Right. And we're supposed to be the same people we were before. We've just gone through trauma and experience. Some of it's positive. Some of it's painful. A lot of it's emotional. And how can our friends and families help us? Set it up. I'm going to need some alone time. I'm going to need some friend time. I'm going to need some rest time. I'm going to need some reflection time. Like you're going to need a little bit of it all. And some people you want to reflect with and bond with and share the cathartic experience. And some people you just may not be there. And it's okay. That's great advice. It really is. I've done this a few times with a couple times. Yeah. A couple times we learn things. Other things to learn in terms of expectations. You're not going to go straight forward. You're going to go forward, back, forward, back in your recovery. One day it'll be better and then you'll be back a little bit. And it's going to go that way for a couple of weeks. After you've fully recovered from the incision and the actual physicality of the, the procedure, scar reduction is something you can think about at that point. If you're If you want to reduce your scar, I've got a great tip. It's silicone stick and bio oil. You massage it in and let the stuff soak in and and do this every morning and night for six months. You cannot see my scar. Like there's no scar here at all. Like I did too good of a job. People don't believe I had a transplant. Swear to God, somebody went in there. That's awesome. Um, So that's something to think about. So not every scar heals the same. Um, Just think about, okay, I'm going to have a scar now. What does that scar mean to me? I think it's a goddamn battle wound. I do too. It it's rocket. Like you went through some stuff to get zipper there. club, right? Yeah, you join the zipper club. It's it's it shows how badass you are. You you've endured this. Like okay, if I can do this, what else can I do? Plus, I don't generally go shirtless in public. So before yeah. or after surgery. <laughs> gotcha, Joey. I want to thank you for joining us and taking us another step in your journey. Next time we talk to you, you should have spoken with a surgeon and we'll have some more information on what's next in the process. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors, including Bristol-Myers Squip, Cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, and Embrya 
pharmaceuticals. Without their support, programs like Tales from the Heart would not be possible, and we wouldn't be able to provide the great services here at the HCMA that we provide to our Thank community. Thank you. Thank you all. Yes, thank you all. And the HCMA is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Please consider us as part of your philanthropic giving or your birthday donations from Facebook or whatever you're going to do to try to help the community. Financial support or volunteer time is certainly welcome. So if you want to sign up to be a volunteer, visit 4hcm.org. Joey, thanks for joining us today. And thank, thank you everybody you, on Facebook for joining us for this conversation. And we'll see you next week.